Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia. Hi Carrie. Um, did you have a long journey here today? I had quite a long journey, yeah. Yeah, yeah me too. We've, we've come from Oxford and Margate to record the show in London. We have, we pilgrimage. Yeah, and, and that is very convenient because the theme of our show today is on the road. Um, no, we're not spending an hour talking about Jack Kerouac, thank God. Thank God. Instead, we'll be swiftly dumping Jack out the car window and talking about all the other wonderful books that have taken us on the road and usually on a journey of discovery too. Girl. Our guest today is Damien Lebas, whose fascinating book, The Stopping Places, is a journey through Gypsy Britain, in which he visits the places scattered through Britain where his family and ancestors in the traveler community have made their temporary homes. Octavia, do you want to tell our listeners a little more about Damien? <laughs> With great pleasure, babe. Um, that wasn't scripted at all, by the way. Not at all scripted. No, 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 totally off the cuff. Ad lib. Uh, Damien Lebeau was born in 1985 into a traditional gypsy family. He was awarded scholarships to study at Christ Hospital and the University of Oxford. Between 2011 and 2015, he was the editor of Traveller's Times, Britain's only national magazine for gypsies and travellers. He lives and works mostly in Kent and Sussex, and The Stopping Places is his first book. And it is very, very good. Yes, I agree. Um, we're really excited to have him on the yeah. show today. And before we get started with that, we do have a couple of announcements, don't we? We do. Um, the first is to say that we're absolutely delighted to have been nominated for Best Culture Podcast at the British Podcast Awards, which is really, really exciting. Um, off the back of that slightly mawkish request also which is making me quite embarrassed but you guys uh, can also vote for us um as listeners choice and uh we would be really grateful if you if you did oh god i feel like i'm asking you all to yeah go i'll just say I, it's on the british podcast <laughs> awards website please vote for us thank you <laughs> <laughs> um we love you uh, the second is that we're also really excited because our next show is going to be a recording of a live event at the derby book festival with um the excellent writer john mcgregor who is is an author, uh, most recently of the acclaimed novel Reservoir 13. So if you fancy coming to see us in the flesh, um, we'd really love to see you there. If you're based in the north, come. Um, if you're based in the south, travel. Is Derby in the north? Yeah. I thought it was Midlands. Oh, God. I might be wrong. I'm sorry. I've just offended so many people. Okay, keep keep talking. <laughs> I also called it Derby until very recently, so... You're I'm going to learn lots at this festival. Go back to where you come from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we would love to see that. It's 7 p.m. on June the 2nd in Derby, and you can book tickets on the festival website. Yes, so back to the show today. We'll be talking to Damien, then more generally about the tradition of road novels and other books that use journeys as their narrative frame, and then finally giving our book recommendations as usual. So come get your kicks on Literary Fricks. <laughs> <laughs> I got goosebumps. I'm cringing yeah, so hard. I was really pleased when I came up with that one. I wish you guys could see Carrie's face right now. She looks kind of demented <laughs> with, with glee as she watches me squirm. <laughs> Damien, thank you so much for coming on to Literary Friction. We've asked you to start with a reading, so could you set that up for us, please? I can. This is uh, from the latter part of my book, and it's about Appleby Horse Fair. We stroll around the town for a bit and sit down next to the Eden for a few minutes to watch the bravest boys and girls ride their horses in and out of the river, stopping in between on the gravel beach to rub soap into their animals' slick wet coats, a baptism across the line of species. On the bridge overlooking the river, a couple of photographers with telephoto lenses are snapping the scene, trying to get close to the gypsy life from a distance. I take a couple of pictures on my phone to send to mum, mostly just to let her know we're here. Outside the Grapes, one of the only pubs that stays open all the way through fair week, crowds of bare-chested men of all ages are counting out 20 and 50 pound bets on the toss of a coin. Tiny shimmers of metal fly upwards, eight or ten feet in the air, and the men's gazes jerk after them as if they hope to witness an apparition. On the surface of it, it's a simple game of luck, but there are travelling men who have practised the art of the coin spin all their lives, regulating the number of turns with precision, until this archetype of chance is bent into a skill. A man in Sussex is known for being able to throw heads nine times out of ten. Today all the gamblers are half cut with beer, foreheads and necks a brassy sheen of sweat. Some hold horsewhips, 
a custom-made catapult carved from a piece of antler juts out of a skin-tight back jeans pocket. Everyone is holding a pint of beer. There isn't a single bottle or small glass to be seen, and some men have a drink in each hand, which reminds me of Dad and makes me laugh as I point it out to my wife. I've heard the grapes takes more money in fair week than it does in the other 51 weeks of the year combined. We walk back towards the hill as a green Lamborghini full of young men, hair slicked back as though they've just emerged from the river themselves, drives past as slowly as possible, bowls club speed. Sun-tanned arms hang out of its windows, some of them heavy with thick gold bracelets. Inside I can make out grinning white smiles and the lacquer black of sunglasses fixed in a beady arc above them as the lyrics and synthetic beats of a pop song pulse and pound out I need a dollar at incredible volume. We pass under the old road bridge as it echoes with the clip-clop sound of occasional passing horses. Six men sit on a traditionally painted and gilded flat cart as it manoeuvres past the Lamborghini, legs in grey slacks and immaculate boots dangling off the edges, their soles almost skimming the road. I try not to notice a posse of girls aged from their teens to their thirties as they strut past on enormous heels, their busts and behinds trussed up in tight tops and mini skirts of bright and brash design. Behind them, a stately middle-aged woman with dark skin, wearing a colourful Diclo scarf, her hair neatly piled up and pinned on top of her head, throws them a rapier glance of intergenerational disapproval. I think of Grandad, telling me that years ago you could spend a whole week here and not catch sight of a single naked knee. You'd be more likely to see all the women of a family sitting cross-legged in long skirts and dresses on a cloth stretched out before their wagon, sipping cups of tea, or simply watching the rest of the fair go by. He also said that a man would have been ill-advised to go about bare-chested, as so many nowadays do. Taking your shirt off would risk being interpreted as a challenge to every single man on the hill, and you might have found yourself in trouble fast, if you were even still conscious to know it. Thank you so much. That's a wonderful description, and I want to get back to the fair and the fairs in general because those form a big part of this book um but i wanted to first just start um by asking this this book is called a journey through gypsy britain and i think it is worth just defining what a gypsy is because as you point out in this book um these are some of the most sort of marginalized but also romanticized people and there are so many myths about who gypsies are and where they come from. Um, and for me especially, you know, I'm, I'm from the States and reading this book made me realize just how little I actually knew about um, about the traveler community in, in the UK and, and in Europe. So do you mind talking a little bit about that? Sure. The word gypsy has been fought over, its meaning contested for centuries to... Romani people, the community that I come from, its its meaning is pretty clear. It's basically a synonym for, for Romani, although it has sometimes been used to describe other nomadic and connected peoples. So Irish travellers have been known as gypsies as well, for instance. But it's an ethnic term, that much is never in doubt. And uh, ethnic gypsies and travellers are often a bit bemused or offended when people use it as an aspirational term kind of you know meaning an art artistic or hippie lifestyle or anything like that uh, for us it's it's a, an ethnonym plain and simple and it comes from the word Egyptian originally which is a misnomer Romani people don't originate from Egypt although some believe they do uh, I would have to say that the evidence is pretty clear that the Romani language and culture comes from India and to a greater or lesser extent, we're all descended from an Indian diaspora. Probably lesser in my case, which you'd understand if you could see my face. Yeah, one of the quotes in the book that really stood out to me was you describe it as this pincer of demonization and romanticization. And you bring up this fact that, the you know, in the UK, and this is something that Carrie, I think, also was a surprise to you when you came here like we love as you say like glamping camping festival culture there's like a, a kind of surface level appropriation of gypsy with a small g and then you know a, a real like those signs that are so infamous no 
travellers, no Irish, no blacks from the 60s that were up in pubs in rural England and all that stuff. Um, but there's this sense of kind of tribal identity which really comes across to me in the book and mm. your your relationship to that tribal identity, which is not entirely straightforward, right? Um, and that, you know, I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, about how you have related to your gypsiness, I suppose, or your gypsy identity, and if that's changed now that you've been on this journey and, and written about it. Well, firstly, I have mixed blood, and gypsies love to draw clean lines between things, which isn't always possible or desirable, I would argue, but, you know, they, they do, we do. Of course, I say we because that's the community I grew up in, so... I mean, for me, the binary language around race, which is sort of getting more and more common and and more and more heated at the minute, is alarming because I've often felt like I got feet in various camps. But, you know, that's the community I come from. Um, making things more complicated, I went to boarding school on a scholarship when I was 11, which no one in my family had ever done anything like that. And there was a massive argument in the family about whether that was a good idea because secondary school in particular for a lot of gypsy people is associated with sex and drugs and rock and roll basically which aren't aspirational things for them so uh yeah there was a lot of worry about what would happen to me there and maybe some of it is justified in terms of me not leading a typical life uh the kind of life that the rest of my family mostly lead because i don't you know i've written this book and I should say at an early stage that that hasn't made me very popular with some people. Uh, I just picked up the first copy off the press today and part of me feels a massive surge of pride to have done this thing because I, you know, I kind of inhabit the literary world and that's great and I'm really happy I've done this and people, people seem to be reacting positively to it but it's cost me relationships to have done this. Mentioning language and... Um and you know the possible alienation of certain people from writing the book i wanted to ask you about that further on in the conversation because you include at the back a glossary of romany words yeah and for me i'm a linguist so i found all the language inclusion really fascinating and wonderful but you say in the book that that there is this yeah complicated thing about revealing the secrets of the romany language to those who don't speak it um and you talk about your relationship to the language as something that you know you when you speak it you have to be kind of in the right mood for it to flow easily and things like that and I think that identity and language are so impossible to separate um and I just wondered if you know when you were writing the book if it felt very natural to include Romany words and if the the like idea to have the glossary at the back was something that came very organically or if you made that choice further on or I had to use the language because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to render the speech or I'd say the thought patterns of, of gypsy people authentically. So the language inevitably found its way in there. I didn't initially want to do a glossary. Putting a glossary in it has an interesting history for, or has had for other Romany writers. So one of our greatest poets, a woman called Bronislava Weiss, uh, she included a, a mini dictionary of Romany in her first book and that was a real problem for her people and in fact she was outcast for most of the rest of her life. So I mean, you know, I sort of wondered if there was a way I could get away without it but ultimately the purpose of a book is to explain and if you're not happy to do that you simply can't do the book really and language is so important to me. It's the most important thing there is in my culture for me and I think partly that's because I don't look like people's typical imagining of a gypsy. So the language was something that I could have, which was a physical, externalizable thing that meant I definitely was who I said I was, because many people simply don't believe it. I loved reading about the language and um, and you say that it becomes this tangible thing for you. And I really felt that in the book, especially when you were introducing yourselves to um, travelers that you met along your journey. Often the way that you would signify your shared heritage was just by addressing them in, in Romany. Um, just a word here and there. Yeah, exactly. You don't tend to use it that fluently unless the need arises, which is normally, to, you know, if there's someone there who you don't want to understand. 
Yeah, which I loved that that little detail as well. That it's it's often used as a as a language that you want to speak when you want others not to know what you're saying. Um, and this this sort of secret code that you have amongst yourselves. Um, and the other thing I loved reading about was was just the the other cultural signifiers that you've inherited from your family, um, which came through to me as as something that you really loved and treasured. Um, and, you know, I, we were just looking at the end papers of the book um, with horses and magpies, and you talk about dress and music and song. And can you talk a little bit more about that culture and, and what it means to you? There's another Romany author, one of my respected elders, called Maggie Smith-Bendel. And she described it as that when she was a child... They had a complete cultural way of life. And by that she meant they had their own music, their own cuisine, language, patterns of travel, clothes. Their clothing was normally really distinct uh, for men and women. And that has kind of faded away a bit. And I think that comes across in that bit. There's a bit better section in the book where I'm sort of accosted by another travelling fella at Appleby Fair, and he's wearing, you know, tracksuit trousers, trainers, and a and a t-shirt, and I guess would not look distinct from any kind of normal working class bloke to most people, and that's the way it is now. I think that's absolutely fine. Of course, people wear what they like, but I mean, part of me feels slightly sad that they're kind of the vivacious, rambunctious fashion of of gypsies has sort of taken a bit of a downturn, although it hasn't in my mother's case because you certainly notice when she walks into the room. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, that, so there was there was that side of it. The music, I mean, one of the reasons I don't talk about music so much in here is I feel like gypsy music is one of the only aspects of our culture which people do know about on the whole. I mean, most people have heard of the Gypsy Kings or Django Reinhardt or these people, a um, lot of successful singers in Eastern Europe and stuff, including in pop music. and So that, you know, flamenco and uh, Sinti jazz and that kind of stuff is obviously, you know, world-class Hungarian orchestral musicians. That's quite known about. So I do mention that, but not as much as some of this other stuff, like the language, which I feel people don't know uh, even exists, to be honest. It certainly doesn't have recognition in many countries at all, including Britain. Uh, but some of the other stuff, you know, I do... The, the connection to horses, um, some of this amazing jewellery we have that's passed down the generations, some of the, the field craft, which I have scant knowledge of, but I have a bit, you know, I'm sort of okay at, at living outside. The journey that you describe... You know, it's got a lot of moments of celebration, but also one of the things that really came across to me was just the grueling nature of living on the road. And um, I wondered you could talk a bit about that, about living in the van, these moments of kind of cold, dark loneliness, and then moments of amazing connection when you meet people along the way. But like, it's, you know, it's a very real rendering of what that experience actually might be like. Well, I found it tough, and I was living alone mostly and and was earning money through writing. So, I mean, you know, play the violin for me. That's like the easy version of, of living on the road. For travellers who lived that way traditionally, they'd have been in, for centuries, in, in a much harsher environment, uh, living in more makeshift accommodation. Because the, the Bender tent was really the typical traveller's accommodation. It became the wagon in later years, but for centuries it was the tent. Um, they also typically had big families, so loads of children. You know, women were giving birth to children in this environment uh, and often on the poverty line and having to go out every day and earn money. So, you know, I was living the the sort of light, easy version of it and it was definitely a tough way of life and it still is if you're, if you're really living roadside with children and stuff. So, uh, yeah... And it's also, I think this comes across hopefully in the book, it's a really dual, two-sided coin of an experience. Like the winter is just sort of can be hell, really. I mean, it's, it's just horrible. And the summer can be amazing. And that's the period of gypsy life that was envied 
and romanticized and the winter was kind of pitied and spawned christian missions going out trying to help these people and there were times in the winter where i thought what am i, what am I doing and was quite severely depressed at times just just existing in this van and unable to go out and your movement is determined by the rain and stuff um, it's incredibly difficult to keep things clean i finally felt i understood the struggle of of travelers to to keep things clean especially with this neurosis about being seen as dirty many travelers are almost psychotically clean it's like a it's an obsession to to wash everything constantly and uh, someone once asked me what if there were any smells that reminded me of my childhood and sure there were lots of nice rural ones but the main one was probably bleach because <laughs> my family was so obsessed with with cleaning up and let's talk a little bit about uh the the sort of purpose of this journey and the structure of it as well because um at least initially you you set out to find the stopping places um and and make a sort of map of your family's personal history and and sort of gypsy culture more widely these stopping places so can you describe what they are and why you wanted those to be the focus of the journey that you took in the in this uh ford transit van a stopping place is just anywhere where people have stopped which is the word travelers use for camped basically but to qualify as a as a real stopping place it would have to be somewhere people repeatedly went back to i guess but but I had I began with a looser definition, and that was anywhere where anyone of my people had had lived for any amount of time. So that's why I was kind of overwhelmed with the the number of these places, and in the end had to had to cut it down and and not try to be systematic because there were just so many of them. But that was what interested me about it that it was this complex, enormous, unseen geography and largely uninvestigated because there's this idea that gypsies and travelers don't leave physical artifacts which is actually not true i mean if you go to for instance where some of the compounds were where gypsies were forced to live in the new forest there's you can you can do amateur archaeology and turn up incredible stuff um the detritus of everyday life you know shoes old whiskey bottles uh parts of old cars this, so there are physical traces of this geography. But for me, it was also a, a kind of emotional thing, almost a spiritual thing, that there was a haunting of the countryside by these reviled and often forgotten people who I happen to be descended from. And I would be thinking about this whenever I was on the radio doing my job as a journalist, trying to, you know... How introduce a bit of nuance into a debate about travellers on air and there would be no concept of, of the length and depth of the history, the fact that we belonged here, the fact that it was a it was a real history that was tied to things like agriculture and the seasons and uh, there was this constant sense that travellers had just sort of turned up and when, had never been wanted anywhere and had never done anything useful never fought in the war, never done any jobs that were useful for the country. And this stuff is nonsense. Obviously, th th there are antisocial types, and particularly amongst the, the very poor, as there are in all communities. But uh, I was basically exhausted by the lack of nuance in the way this subject was treated in the media, and that kind of drove me to write this. And then, of course, the challenge was to try and make it feel positive because I had so much anger in me as many gypsies have who've tried to speak up in the public domain. You do a great job of of representing all the different facets that you've just talked about. I mean, there's a paragraph really early on that I found incredibly resonant, where you, you talk about the gypsy kind of way of engaging with life as being one that is that there's proof that um, you can live adjacent to the status quo without needing to kind of appropriate it completely and that this is possible that it's possible to live in this way and live harmonious with whatever society says is the the way we ought to live and all that nonsense and i found that so deeply resonant and beautiful and wonderful and exciting and like uh something that you know an idea that i return to anyway and i had it and put in a different kind of context but it's so important and that's i think you're right that there is a moment at the, there is a moment currently of reassessing 
ancient prejudices to do with race, gender, class, snobberies of all different kinds. Like it does feel like an exciting moment for that to happen. Um, and for it to happen very broadly, you know, and across the, the across the board. And the only way that we can kind of all do the work of encouraging that along is by learning and learning about communities that we know nothing about and like confronting the fact that we're ignorant about a lot of stuff. So that's my piece. I'll get off my soapbox <laughs> yeah, <yeah>. now. <laughs> <laughs> but I did want to ask you, as I said I would, about fairs um, and celebrations. Yeah. Because um, I think you... Uh, well, first of all, I wanted to ask you about your trip to France um, because I, I felt that this was a sort of turning point in the book. Well, I'd come out of a long, hard winter by British standards. Certainly it was cold for me. And uh, I was actually on my way to try and find this skeleton from the 11th century that had Romany DNA, which you know, from an arrogant historical perspective, shouldn't really have been in England at that time because gypsies weren't supposed to have come to Britain until 500 years-ish later. Uh, but then that sent me off on a tangent about how arrogant it is thinking that we know where everyone was in the past, which is just a preposterous hubris, really. But anyway, I was going to find this skeleton. And then I had a chance encounter with an Irish travelling fella at the services. And something he said about life being short... When I, I didn't tell him I was going to visit an ancient skeleton. I told him I was visiting graves, which was a kind of euphemism I thought he wouldn't be freaked out by. Um, and then he, he, he mentioned life being short. And I don't know, sometimes someone you meet for 10 seconds can kind of change the trajectory of, of how things go. And I just thought, maybe it is too short. And I didn't go and see the skeleton. I went back home and redecorated my van instead. And that was when I got talking to an old friend of mine uh, who I've known since I was 11 guy called Anwar who's a a guitarist and you know studies flamenco and stuff and and he he really wanted to go down there as well and we just thought let's just go um he kind of talked me into it I still had this pure idea that I was going to stick to this meticulously designed quest around mainland Britain but it was like oh it's only a couple of weeks we'll go down there and it just in the words of Willard in Apocalypse Now, it really put the zap on my head. Like just the light and space. You know, I was like, Whoa, this is this is a different kind of gypsy land to the mud and horses and and rain and misery that I've just em emerged from. Uh I don't know. I felt like I'd come out of a kind of wet chrysalis of of Britain and uh and everyone seemed so relaxed down there. It was very different to my experience of horse fairs in Britain, I have to say, perhaps that's because it's got this overtly spiritual side in that you're there to venerate this figure. Uh, Black Sarah, Sara Lakali, who in theory is a saint, but I would say there's more going on than her simply being a, a Catholic saint, and I've written a bit about this. I think there's traces of Indian religion in there and simply the worship of the continuity of, of gypsies as, as a people. But anyway, you know, that was an, um, an incredible place uh, it's always nice to go to the south of France, isn't it? But, but <laughs> beyond that, I mean, it was a kind of vision of of a Romany utopia in a way. It doesn't last like like most Romany encampments or or things or conjurings don't tend to last too long. But but while you're there, I don't know. You f you feel safe amongst your own people. I could see people who looked like everyone I'd ever known who was a gypsy from anywhere in the world all gathered in this one environment you know fr from the from the oddly the freakishly pale like myself to the real Indian looking Romany people and I don't know wonderful place and the strains of music you hear the rumbas, the jazz, the flamenco the Eastern European orchestral music and then the whole thing is kind of washed over by this tinkling sound of the rigging of yachts so I recommend it. That's, that's in May. Uh, if you want a different experience of what Catholicism can be interwoven with, go to Les Saint-Marie de la Mer and follow the white horses into the sea and be blessed. 
I was very, I was very taken with your description of it. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I'm sold. I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I thought it stood in an interesting contrast to um, the Applebee Fair, which you, which you um, read an extract from your visit there, and where you know you had memories of going there as a youth, and it's the biggest gathering, uh, the biggest gathering of gypsies in the UK. Is that? Is that right? The biggest oh, tourist there? Be, yeah. yeah. Um, and there are so many wonderful things about it, but you actually have quite a scary encounter there. Um, and I don't, I guess I don't want to spoil too much about the book, but um, you, I was interested that you chose to include that, especially when I'm sure you must be nervous about others thinking that you're, you are representing everything about the gypsy community and showing the darkness of that encounter um, I thought was quite a ballsy move in some ways. So I wonder if you could talk about that. Well, if I don't show the darkness, I'm not representing the full picture. And I'm sorry if anyone thinks that having the odd person who's got a bit of a screw loose in my book may be seen to reinforce a stereotype. But I don't really think that's a fair charge, to be honest, because I'm simply writing about what I saw on one particular journey. And someone else on the same journey as me would describe it completely differently, as my wife Candice does. You know, there were things I wrote where she was like, that's not how that happened. And, you know, it just it's a lesson in the subjectivity of of experience and travel in particular. But getting back to the question, it happens near the end. And I guess I did go out of my way to to avoid repeating the kind of stuff that people are already fed endlessly in the papers which is bad gypsies or poor gypsies or violent gypsies or unscrupulous criminal gypsies and stuff because for the most part that isn't what you will see and uh, the coverage is hopelessly skewed because simple law-abiding quite normal people are difficult for journalists to report on because how do you report on a, a lack of activity really you know it's kind of a how do you report on the lack of rubbish when gypsies that don't leave mess leave a campsite is a question that I've often asked myself although I doubt other journalists have um, because there's nothing there's a sort of a glorious lack which is a hard thing to, to make news about so uh, so I you know I did try my best to how am I trying to phrase this? I, firstly, I didn't see much trouble. I really didn't. You know, I travelled for thousands of miles before I met this guy. It just so happened that I'd come back from this amazing place. And then I returned to somewhere where my family had been going for, for a very long time. And that was where I had this experience. And let's be clear, no one was hurt. My pride was hurt because I'd pulled up at this place and I'd romanticised it and I felt so contented and we were cooking dinner and it was like, it was idyllic, you know, the sun was setting and all this stuff, I was rolling a little cigarette and then this guy comes up to inform me that I'm not really welcome here and that was a bit of a shame, I thought. I mean, at the time I was really upset and angry but, uh, yeah, I mean, if that's if that's the worst thing that happens on this journey... That's a pretty good advert for the Romani community because, you know, a few slightly unsavoury words between a drunk guy and another bloke is kind of, it's not the end of the world, is it? Damien Lebeau, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Literary Friction. Thanks for asking me. Uh, to be here. And just to read your book and, and to learn so much in addition to enjoying your language and your storytelling. So thank you. Um, the book is called The Stopping Places. It is out in June from June the Shadow and will be in all good bookshops. Buy it. <laughs> that was Damien Labar talking about his book The Stopping Places and now we're going to talk about the road novel more generally of which his his well, his book's not a novel, but it's definitely a book set on the road in a great tradition of books set on the road. Um, so I think we have to start with the obvious question, which is, is On the Road by Jack Kerouac a good book? 
Uh, Do you want me to tell you what I think? I really want you to tell me what you think, yeah. I would say that I don't really know what I'm talking about because I've tried and failed to read this book a number of times. (laughs) But what I did read really irritated me. And also, I feel that this kind of book that um, men who I distrust like. Nailed it. And so I say no. (laughs) You say no to Jack Kerouac. (laughs) Listen, I read it years ago at the time when everyone was reading it probably when we were like 18 or whatever and I remember thinking it was cool at the time but also not being completely convinced it was a bit emperor's new clothes really um I then completely forgot about it and literally never thought about it again apart from when I met people who said it was their favorite book and I judged them mercilessly for it Mm, because I just think like listen there's stuff going on there that's interesting that was the zeitgeist at the time and and all's well that ends well but also move on there's so much more else to read and there are much more interesting voices I I don't really understand why it still resonates across the generations. So with that, shall we say, hit the road, Jack. Oh, nice. You're (laughs) you're turning into me. I love it. Shit. (laughs) (laughs) No, I can't believe I missed that one. I'm sort of embarrassed. I can't believe you missed that one either. I think I'm inspired by the fact that I'm also grooving to Kylie, the Kylie that's playing in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Um, Yeah, I I think, as you say, it's it's incredibly culturally influential. um, And so we can't totally discard it. But I think we should discard it for our purposes now. Goodbye, Jack. Hit the road. See ya. Um, so let's talk about all the other great novels set on the road. And there are a lot of them, aren't there? It's a, an incredibly popular and enduring um, structure for a book. So why do you think that is? I Well, it's the old journey thing, isn't it? Life's a journey. Book's a journey. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm being facetious, but also there's truth in it because travel narrative travel and literal travel like these are these are motions and momentums that we enjoy and I think that so much of contemporary life can feel very fixed you know I mean I this is also I'm a big commitment phobe talking but like committing to jobs um certain things about lifestyles that fix us to places you know um can can feel restrictive at times and so I think that there's this great space in everyone's imagination for a, a story that is the opposite of that that is about being nomadic and that is about giving two fingers to that establishment way of looking at things and taking risks um and you know there's there's a great pleasure to be to be found in from the warmth and comfort of your bed reading about someone battling through the elements out on the open road you know being uncomfortable and threatened with danger and then triumphing or whatever the narrative might be but it's that dichotomy between the the personal comforts that we might actually choose for ourselves on the day-to-day basis but then where we want to go on these imaginative journeys and there's something very, very inspiring about them for most people, I think, because a lot of road novels and road narratives, more generally, not just fictional ones, um, they are uh, they're adventures, and we love an adventure. I love an adventure. Yeah, totally. That element of escapism, I think, is is you're completely right about that. I think also on a more practical level, a, a journey is a structure. Um, it's somebody getting from point A to point B, um, and it's not only a narrative structure, but it's also a vehicle for change. Um, because of course, as we move through the world, we change as it changes. And I, I think that's very attractive to the novelist and the nonfiction writer mm, as definitely. well. Um, so I was interested in, in this um, from my own cultural perspective, because I see the road novel as particularly American thing and I wonder if you have any thoughts about that yeah do you think that's true yes I do I associate it with American narratives in a big way and some of those kind of classically American stories like a lot of John Steinbeck's work which if not always a road narrative always does invoke this you know um, relationship with vast space um, and the American identity um and also I was thinking about uh, uh Rabbit Run and um Updike's sort of Updike, who really explores the tension between the trappings of suburban life and the desire to escape those things. Um, But also one of the other ones that really, I've talked about it on the show before, um, it's a short story, The Swimmer, Mm. um, which is all about a a similar thing, like uh, imagined physical escape from certain kind of social expectations and also the escape of addiction and alcoholism, which is which is another thing. But yes, I do think of them as, as American stories. I think that's partly facilitated by the geography 
you can travel vast distances without having to navigate change in language or you know significant changes in culture that might be prohibitive or dangerous necessarily obviously from state to state things change quite a lot but at the same time it's contained within this one national structure, which I think is helpful, narratively speaking. Um, and also, the founding histories of the white America <laughs> are to do with conquering space um, and taking over, aren't they? Yeah, westward expansion yeah. And, the, and the sort of romanticism of, of that. that. I think also just the the emphasis in American society on freedom and individualism really lends itself to the road narrative because as you say, it's so often an escape from society. Um, and I think that's a very attractive idea in America and, it, and it's a real part of the fabric of American life and the American mythology. I mean, also when you go somewhere in America, you often have to drive there. <laughs> so right. it's, a, it's a practical consideration. Um, but I, I think you're right um, to point out that it's often the white men who are doing this traveling and this reclaiming of space. And I think it's impossible to talk about road narratives without addressing the fact that it takes an immense amount of privilege to actually be the person who's writing these books, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that you end up having this interesting tension where it's either immense privilege or complete lack thereof, often. Um, because there is a kind of road life that is necessitated by a lack of privilege and a lack of place. And then there's the kind that is all about having the time and space to be able to take this trip. Um, and I think that there's a parallel with writing as well. I mean, to write is a privilege. To write a long book has an inherent um, privilege in it because it means stepping out from the drives of capitalist productivity and you know all these other things that people who... Um, are maybe more entrapped by those things, don't get the chance to do. But I think the question of privilege in terms of road narratives is also, it's to do with whether you're going to be welcome or not. It's to do with whether you're going to be safe or not. And obviously, the intersections of different um, prejudices uh, are going to heap upon certain individuals. So yes, a white man, a straight white man, as ever, has the most unlimited amount of access to any space that he might want to enter. And we move down that you know, as the intersections kind of collate. Yes, I completely agree. And I think, um, you know, f there's an added element of, say, books like Heart of Darkness, where it's not only a white man entering a space, it's a it's a white man um, fetishizing or otherize, otherizing, othering um, the, the people who he's encountering. And, I, I, you know, I'm happy to say that there are plenty of books that subvert that narrative, of course. Um, you know, I was thinking of Black Boy by Richard Wright, which is a really wonderful book about the African-American experience in, in America. Um, the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, which I've talked about. A book that I read about that I haven't read, but now just want to just um, by reading the title, which is Erica Lopez's Flaming Iguanas, an illustrated all-girl road novel thing. Uh, that Does not great. sound great? Yes. Um, so, and, and even Damien's book, I think, really is... Um, he makes a really important point, which is all of these these books, especially these nonfiction books, which we can talk about, are about people who leave their life behind and go to explore something because they want to. Um, and that's an escape from their everyday life when he's writing about a life that's ar already on the road. Um, and gypsy culture, which is inherently about traveling rather than traveling as something that's a break from what you do yeah, with your everyday exactly. life. It's not traveling as a conceit. It's just a way of life. Um, I also wanted to mention Lauren Elkin's book Flaneurs because the you know the the figure of the flaneur um, is very urban, so it's not so much road novel material or road narrative material, but it is also about walking and claiming space. And I think it's great that there's a woman writer who's trying to feminize that experience, or or at least place that experience within a context that is privileging the female gaze or questioning the dominance of this particular male gaze. Yeah, totally. So you know, it's it, yeah, it, the the reclamation is happening and it continues to happen. I think it's just as readers, as we continue to decolonize our reading and we continue to open to the fact that we are still getting the majority of narratives. The majority of narratives that we're getting are still from a very, very small section of experience and reality and that we need to be active in opening our minds and opening our consciousness to representations of other ways of doing it. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I think um, we can't end this conversation without talking about the, the non-fiction version of the road narrative, which I think is an interesting space where a lot of that reclamation is happening. Um, of course, travel literature has been around forever, um, and 
you know, people like Patti Lee Fermer and Eric Newby and even before them, you know, the, the earliest writers were going to other places and writing about what they experienced there for their audience at home. Um, more recently, that sort of fragmented into, into new genres that have been called things like nature writing and psychogeography and um, uh, even th- forms of autofiction in which people go on journeys to find out something about the world and usually something about themselves as well. So I think Damien's book definitely falls into that category. Flinna's I, I think has that elements of, of those ideas in them as well. I mean, I could just go on and on and on wild by Cheryl Striad, um, the places in between by Rory Stewart to the river by Olivia Lang, who we had on the show, eat, pray, love, of course, you know, and these, these are a wide range of books, but, um, and some of them I think are more successful than others, but, I, I think it's really interesting that travel has become such a reinvigorated form in the nonfiction space. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think it's also interesting. I think it's important rather to repoliticize it at every possible opportunity. Yeah. Yes. Um, so shall we recommend some of our favorite books about being on the road? Yes, I'd love to start with mine, darling. I really would. So the, I'm recommending a book that I came to via its film adaptation. And I feel like you might have even mentioned this Um a while ago um yes yeah yeah it's it's rare that i come to a book via a film so i I really have enjoyed that experience i think i also came to it via you though because you spoke about it anyway it's called under the skin by um michelle faber and uh I, i thought of it immediately when we decided on the theme because it just feels so subversive of this thing and it also because the the transit van is central to it i also thought about it when i was reading damien's book um not that they're related at all by anything other than that. But anyway, it's subversive and brilliant. It's it's very different from the film as well. So actually, the book and the film end up complementing each other rather than vying for dominance, which I think is always a nice thing. Um, if you haven't seen the film or read the book, it's about an extraterrestrial called Isili who appears on Earth and is surgically altered to present in female human form, which in the film is you know beautifully embodied by Scarlett Johansson. So I have to say, when I read the book... I did just think about Scarlett Johansson, but that's fine. She's a, a beautiful person to be thinking about. Anyway, Isalie drives around the countryside in Scotland and she picks up male hitchhikers who she then delivers back home to her planet where they can be fattened and consumed as food. Um, and I won't say more than that, but it, the thing that's really interesting about it is it's a very haunting and astute kind of satirical look at questions about identity, structures of oppression, productivity, big business, gender politics, sex, appetite, all these things that I actually think the road the road narrative exists at the intersection of all of those things. So um, it felt like an, 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 like an exciting kind of um, coming together of all of those big political questions. Um, and, and, and also to make us think again about the way society marginalizes those that don't comply with the rules of these mechanisms, which are such you know powerful driving forces and you all know how I feel about them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's what? great. How do you feel about them, Octavia? <laughs> Tell us again. Oh, I think we're sure on time base. <laughs> anyway, it's great and uh, it's got a lot of my best stuff in it so I would <laughs> recommend that you read it no it is it is a fantastic book and and I think a really um has something very profound to say about driving in cars along with many other things <laughs> <laughs> was that some shade there Carrie <laughs> no never basic never. witch that's you <sighs> what about you what's your recommendation um, well y- you know you can't talk about road narratives or travel um, journeys in fiction or nonfiction without talking about the Odyssey, of course. Um, although I guess we didn't talk about it, <laughs> but I'm talking about knew, it we now. We knew you were going yes, to. Um, <laughs> this was all very carefully structured. Um, but, you know, it, it uh, that the imprint of that book is in many books in Western literature and especially in books that deal with travel. Um, and I'd like to endorse, for that reason, new translation that has been getting a lot of attention and love recently by the British classicist Emily Wilson, um, who I think teaches in America. Um, and, you know, our listeners have probably heard about this already if they're on Twitter, because I, it really has been a sort of sensation, hasn't it? It has. The, the amount of coverage so. and excitement around it. Um, and one of the reasons it has been so celebrated is because it is the first time that a woman has translated Homer's Odyssey, which is sort of fantastic to even think about. But um, not only that, um, she in the book is challenging many of the sort of meanings of words that many of the male translators have sort of foisted upon the Greek. And she has this great first sentence where she says, tell me about a complicated man. 
um, well, she translates as tell me about a complicated man when, when other translators have often interpreted the same word as shifty or cunning or of twists and turns. And you just see, you, you just understand instantly, first of all, um, what having a different perspective can do to reinvigorate a text, but also how influenced we are by the people who have translated culture and ideas and words for us in the past, getting back Completely. to what we said before. Um, and I would also recommend a great Twitter thread about how she talks about the scene with the sirens and how that's been written and how it's influenced um, what we think about sirens and, and what they're actually doing to Odysseus. It, it's fascinating, but I'm not that far in, but um, I, I started reading it and I'm happy to say that it's not just a feminist reinterpretation. It's actually a really, really good, well-written translation and a really enjoyable one. And, and I, I would really recommend that people check it out. I can't wait to read it. I really can't. Yeah, it sounds great. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Damien Labat to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? As always, with pleasure. Um, I just read a fa fabulous, fabulous book called All the Devils Are Here by David Seabrook. Um, and it actually, it feels like a really nice counterpart to your book, Damien. So it's the, they're a great pair. Um, it's beautiful, lyrical account of the mysteries of Northeast Kent, which I picked up because I've just moved to Margate. And so I wanted to learn a bit more about my, my new hood and its history and all those things. Um, and it had had some interesting buzz. It was just republished by Granta recently. And the cover has a picture of Margate's famous infamous uh sea uh, kind of well, seafront basically with dreamland and the amazing ugly brutalist structure that stands next to it which i, I kind of love hate um but it's one of the best books i've read in a really long time it's just his writing style is so compelling and brilliant and co kind of conversational but also really skilled um and you really get a sense of the man. And it's actually it's a terrible shame he died in 2009. Otherwise, I would be trying to hunt him down for an interview. <laughs> um, but it's it's wonderful. And the thing that it makes me think about, about your book as well, Damien, is that there's a real sense of the kind of folkloric history of England and the sort of mysticism and, and kind of strange, rural, nuggety characters and, and people who are living in ways that are unconventional to the kind of urban Britain that like a lot of people think of. Um, and it made me think a bit of Jez Butterworth, uh, who wrote Jerusalem and and has written other plays, but that's the one that I like the best. Um, and these kind of yeah, it, I don't know. It's very it's it, it's interesting and exciting, and also for me living in Margate, it's it's just been a real education because the bit of town that I live in, Cliftonville, is these days a bit of a shit heap. Um, but apparently, it used to be super grand, and you used to have to pay to enter, and you used to have to wear the right gear and all this stuff. So it's kind of this amazing like this town that had this massive fall from grace. Um, and a lot of the other places along the coast as well deal. Anyway, it's fabulous and uh, I would recommend reading it and then coming down to Margate and putting your feet in the sea and eating a pea fritter, which uh, is a delicious delicacy that you can get from Peter's Fish and Chip Shop. Octavia claims it's the British food that I'm finally going to like. Listen, I think you're going to dig it. It's great. Guys. I do I, need to come to Margate. You need to come and visit and I'll feed it to you and you will enjoy it. Yeah. Also, I... I love I love the way you talked about that book and it was something I was thinking about while reading Damien's book which is you know the every single piece of ground we walk on or building we enter in this country is just a palimpsest and we can never fully know well, its you're history. So spiritual of me right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's really it's like there we can't we can't know what the history of like the ground that we walk on but there's so much to be found out and so many sort of secret meanings to to the places we live yeah and they change and they revert and they invert that's the thing like yeah. you know yeah and like like you said about the arrogance of of a hist of a history that believes it can ascertain where people were at specific times and like that we can look back and and, and have like a tangible concrete proof about a way that a way that a space was inhabited is kind of insane. Mm. Um, but it's wonderful to learn about these things through the subjectivity of like a, a brilliant guide like David Seabrook is or was. So yeah, I recommend it highly, heartily. Great. <laughs> uh, Damien, could we have your recommendation, please? Um, my recommendation is The Nine of Diamonds by McGilvery. 
and this is a collection of poetry which draws on Scottish, Highland and Lowland mysticism and language and French surrealism. But the Nine of Diamonds is a playing card known as the Curse of Scotland because, there, as legend has it, the, the butcher, the Duke of Cumberland, wrote the... Uh, is Cumberland, isn't it? Yeah, Cumberland wrote the order to, to show the Highlanders no quarter on the back of this playing card. So that's the kind of starting point. But the structure of it, um, the author, uh, McGilvery, invokes this practice of standing behind a frozen waterfall to induce visions. Uh, there's a lot of blood and guts and flayedness and tartan, and the language is just unbelievably rich and experimental and there are many many words that i've never encountered before but you can just you can just feel them if you want as you read it or or you can look them up if you want but basically as a kind of as a new linguistic experience like just diving into a pool of something else it's an unbeatable book of poetry and uh, i can't recommend it enough i'm also reading war and peace but i think people know that's really good <laughs> it is really good but that sounds fucking incredible yeah, I mean, you know, she's like one of the top-notch geniuses at work in in uh, poetry. I w- I'd say, yeah, obviously English poetry, but there's the Gaelic in here. There's various forms of Scots in there as well. Um, so for a, for a language geek like me, it's kind of multi-whammy of happiness, uh, a poetry book like this. But it's just, it's a real phantasmagoria of... of of history and Scotland and guts and history. And I mean, it just, I, I think Scotland's the greatest country in the world anyway, even though I have no connection to it at all. But uh, this really makes the case that it's, it's kind of an infinite whirlpool of inspiration and, and a kaleidoscope of everything. Sorry, I'll shut up now. I love this book, The Nine of Diamonds. <laughs> You've really sold it. And, and I have to say, it does sound like an intersection of many of your interests, Octavia. So maybe you should. The love of my maybe, favorite shit. <laughs> maybe you should read it. I might read it too. So I've just been away for two weeks on a on a wonderful holiday, um, which gave me some very blissful time to read books for pleasure, sitting on a beach. Um, I don't know about you guys, but my best reading experiences usually come from when I'm on holiday and the only thing that I'm doing is reading. I just find it so immersive and intense. Um, and the books leave a sort of visceral impression on me often, if they're good books. Um, and this was really one of those books. It's um, it's called Asymmetry, uh, and it's a debut novel by an American writer called Lisa Halliday, who I believe is now based in Milan. Um, and it starts off as being a story about a young woman called Alice who has an, a, a relationship with a much older writer. Um, and this is pretty clearly based on Philip Roth, um, who Halliday <laughs> had a relationship with so in, her tw- me, in her 20s. But also. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a really beautifully written story. Um, it, it's not exploitative. It's, it's really thoughtful about, you know, what it what this relationship means and subjectivity and all of those things. And, and so I was reading that and I was like, wow, this is a great this is a great story. And then all of a sudden, halfway through the book, it switches to a first person narrative um, by an Iraqi American named Amar. And we're not given any reason as to why his story is connected to to hers. And we're really not given any reason until the very end when it's slightly hinted how these stories might be related to each other. Um, And actually, the, the novel ends with a transcript from a Desert Island Discs interview with the writer. So it's a very weird book. Um, and it's, I, it's, I'm really glad that it wasn't just a story about this relationship between an older and a younger person. It ends up being a story about subjectivity and if we can ever escape our own subjectivity and which um, personalities we're allowed to inhabit and what art is all about. I, and and it really, I, I, it's very weird and it's very disorienting, but all the better for it. And I, I really liked it. It sounds really good. I wasn't interested until it got weird. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so yeah, Lisa Halliday, I, Asymmetry. Can I Check borrow it, it, please? Yeah, yeah. So that's All the Devils Are Here, The Nine of Diamonds, and Asymmetry. 
good titles. Yeah, strong list of titles. Better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Never. <laughs> All right, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you to our interviewee, Damien Labar, Rory Bowens at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast and to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram and you can get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Yeah, and to us. yeah, we love to hear from you and please correct our mistakes if we make them oh, as yeah, well. Oh yeah, we're very open we are to that. aware. <laughs> Um, and we'll be back in a month until then I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction